Thank you for downloading Looking Glass, a podcast series from the Institute of Physics, exploring what we can learn from other perspectives in society. I'm Angela Saini, a science journalist and author who looks at what goes on underneath the research we see, the politics of science, the funding of it, and the biases in it. In this series, we've been discussing some of the major challenges the world is facing, such as the climate crisis, big data and AI, and healthcare and inequality. We've heard from experts, including some physicists, spanning lots of disciplines. Across these different topics, patterns and themes have emerged about the role of the scientific organisations in society going forward. How can they be more transparent and communicate better with the public? What is the ethical role of the scientist when designing AI tools and gathering data sets? How can science make room for forms of knowledge that have been historically overlooked? Can scientists even learn from social justice activists when it comes to shaping public narratives around their work? Given that this is an Institute of Physics podcast, I wanted to put these questions to the physics community itself. So, in this episode, we've invited two physicists, each at opposite ends of their careers, to unpack what we've learned that can be applied to the IOP and many other organisations. Dr. Dame Frances Saunders is a leading physicist in her field, a former liquid crystallographer working in the LCD Displays Research Group at the Royal Signals and Radar Establishment, Malvern. Dr. Saunders made enormous contributions to displays that would go on to be widely used in the instrumentation and signboard industries. She was appointed a member of the UK Space Agency Steering Board in 2015. She was president of the Institute of Physics from 2013 to 2015 and is a trustee of the Engineering Development Trust. She may have retired in 2012, but that hasn't stopped her from continuing to promote science, engineering and leadership, especially for young people. At 22, Sophie Martin is just entering her career as a professional physicist. She's a first-year PhD student at I4 Health Centre for Doctoral Training in Intelligent Integrated Imaging in Healthcare at University College London, where she's researching health AI. Sophie is also the media and communications strategic lead at the Blackett Lab family, which aims to represent, connect and inspire UK black minds and change the perception of physicists. So I'll start with big data and artificial intelligence. Now, in that episode, Jansu Jansa from the AI Ethics Lab was saying that ethics needs to be built into the development process, that it can't just be an afterthought. It needs to be right there from the beginning. Now, the question is, what does that mean in practice? Sophie, let's start with you. Yeah, so a lot of my PhD work actually involves interacting with AI. So I'm doing medical imaging with AI and therefore ethics is a really big part of what we do. And for me, I think it comes into play when you're handling data and doing the preparation for these algorithms. So I think in one of the episodes, we spoke a little bit about the difference between AI and machine learning and these kind of processes. And an important thing is that people like to kind of 
view AI as this kind of self-sustaining system that navigates its way through the data, but it is driven by what you feed in as inputs. And I think that's where the ethics question really comes into play because you then need to have an awareness for what your data contains. The algorithm can only understand and make inferences based on what you feed it. And I think, for example, when it comes to, let's say, AI used for healthcare classifications like cancer predictions, if you haven't given the model information on a diverse set of inputs and people and data, then it won't be able to pick up the subtle differences. And in that way, you're, you are responsible for kind of giving the model flexibility to, to capture that spread. Francis, you've had such a long career in engineering. You've seen it from so many different aspects. Why is it that these kind of social issues, this importance of thinking about bias and the way that it affects the way we think about data and how we program our systems, why is it such a big issue now? Why wasn't it there from the beginning? I think it has been there to some extent, but I think it's about it's a level of complexity now. I think if you start off when I was you know, starting off, programs were really quite simple. Uh, coding was quite simple. Uh, you, you still worried about validation of your models. You still worried about testing them before you let them loose on the world. So there was something there about thinking about validation and testing. But I, I think that was more from an accuracy point of view. Did this actually give you the kind of answers you would expect? And how do you, how do you check that it's not giving you some rogue answers? I think what's becoming more apparent is as you start to use these techniques particularly in areas that involve people and people's data, then you need to ask different sorts of questions. Uh, And it's the sort of questions you probably didn't have to ask. So if all you were doing was kind of optimising a physical process that didn't really affect people. So, Francis, what do you think are the different questions we should be asking now? I think we should be asking about who does this affect? We should be thinking more about the operation of and the application of these types of algorithms and thinking quite broadly about what are the perhaps unexpected consequences of a wrong decision or a decision that perhaps might be biased in a particular way. Uh, And that would then lead back to the sort of thing Sophie was talking about, which is what are the training data sets you use? Are they properly representative of the people that are going to be affected by the decisions that this this, uh, algorithm might make? You have to sort of almost look at it from the other end of the telescope and say, right, what what are we really trying to do here? And who's going to be uh, impacted by whatever we do? And Sophie, what are the challenges there? It's almost, as kind of Francis put it, it's like trying to think about the outcome before you've actually carried out the experiment or carried out the test. You're kind of almost trying to foresee what problems um, may arise. And I think for that, you need to have a certain attitude and quite a... Uh, a critical way of thinking to be able to actually identify how your model could potentially have some bias or be affected by bias. So I think that kind of need to plan ahead of time is, is what makes it quite difficult. I mean, one of the issues here around building systems that won't make mistakes or (laughs) won't fall into these traps around bias is that we're often so unaware of what our biases are. And especially if as a scientist or an engineer, you're working to achieve a certain outcome, a specific outcome, it's very easy to be oblivious of all the different other, uh, as Francis, you say, unexpected factors that could emerge out of what you're doing. So how reasonably can we expect these systems, which are so integral to our lives now, to take account of all of that, Sophie? 
I guess the optimistic response would be it, it's kind of down to us to to manage and plan our approach to dealing with, with that problem. I think there are examples of ways people are trying to tackle the, the issue. So one is um, looking at interpretation of ML and these and the models that we build. And there's quite a big field in trying to kind of get around the issue of the black box and actually look at how the algorithm's coming to its decisions and by better understanding how it's actually operating and how it's giving a particular outcome, that will then allow you to, to kind of mold and, and shape how it works. And I guess then answer some of the problems or try and tackle that bias it might have. But doesn't that get tougher and tougher, you know, as these programs become ever more complicated? It just becomes impossible, I would imagine. It's, I, I wouldn't say impossible, but it definitely does become a harder feat. So that, so actually, um, there's quite a lot of work specifically when it comes to neural networks and that kind of field of machine learning, because where people have been able to understand the mathematics behind some of the simpler machine learning algorithms like um, logistic regression and random forests, neural networks are notoriously complex and they've got so many layers and so many steps involved before you actually get your output but there are there are techniques for for dealing with that and um these techniques can be compared and contrast and validated to to kind of assess how well they work so for example one way is to take take something that you know to be true so take a take a picture or a photo where you know you expect the algorithm to focus on a particular area and then use that to actually test whether you're able to understand how it got to that that conclusion. And Francis, what do you see happening in these spaces that feels positive to you? Much like Sophie says, I think people are increasingly interested in trust and trusted algorithms and thinking about testing regimes. But it is a complex area. And part of it must also be about thinking about where is it appropriate to use these techniques and where is it not appropriate to use them uh, and to, to use some slightly more mandrolic approaches. Uh, so I, I think we, we need to really educate ourselves and, and particularly educate the next generation of software engineers right at the start of their, their development so that they think about these things. It's embedded in the way in which they they develop their their craft rather than it being something that they learn after they've learned all the sort of the technical aspects. Yeah, that was I certainly when we were recording that episode, that was something that resonated with me because I studied engineering like you, Francis, and I don't remember that much kind of embedded cultural or ethics training in what I was doing. It was almost as though it didn't really matter because if you're building a bridge or fixing a car or whatever it is that you're doing, it's extraneous to what's happening in the rest of the world. But actually, as we're increasingly starting to understand, that's not the case, is it? No, it isn't. And I, and I think if you if you look at the way at which university and sort of undergraduate degrees and postgraduate degrees are going, there's much more emphasis now on some of these rounded aspects of education. So that, yes, you've got a core thing that you're trying to, to get to an increased understanding about, but it's embedded in, a, in sort of things, a lot of other skills that you need, including communications, including project management. So that breadth of skills gives you a, perhaps a different perspective from the one that I would have had when I did my undergraduate degree. I certainly do see among some scientists and engineers still this attitude that what's going on in the rest of the world, the politics of it, the bias, whatever else is happening, is not 
relevant to their work. Sophie, for you, is that a barrier that you still come across or or has it has it been broken down now? I see it as a choice. I see that some academics I'm around and some students very much are passionate about science education, um, science communication, being aware of social issues. But at the same time, there are some and, and few who who seem pretty content kind of focusing their work purely on their work and and publishing papers and not necessarily worrying about its impact on, on those outside their field. And I think as it stands, it seems like it's it's a personal decision that you, you need to make as to kind of where you sit on that scale. And I don't see much structural kind of push or, or training um, as Francis speaks about to, to encourage all scientists to think along this way. Um, it very much comes down to the individual. I mean, this is uh, kind of where the stereotype or the myth of the mad scientist comes from, is that someone who's so uh, focused on what they're doing, they're not really thinking about the implications, that science and technology is almost like a train that you can't stop, that it's always going to be moving. And, you know, unless you very, very actively think about the consequences, the scientists won't do it themselves. Do you, do you feel that's still an issue now, that people are so concerned with the next breakthrough that they don't really stop to ask, should we be doing this, Sophie? I, I do, actually. And I think that kind of, a lot of that is fed by the nature of academia and where success is measured and how that's measured. And um, that being, you know, publishing results and publishing papers and who publishes first and whether you're first author, second, third, um, all of these things are are used as measures to kind of quantify how good your science is almost. And I think that kind of competitive sphere and culture just motivates and fuels people's desires to kind of want to publish quickly and maybe not necessarily pause and reflect on the impact or need for their work. It's it's kind of um, a very meritocratic um, way of doing science. And I think discussions are definitely needed about how we can maybe change our approach to to what science is important and how we measure that. Francis, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's interesting. And I think I've, I've not myself worked in, a, in, in academia, but I've worked with a lot of academics. And I would say it depends. I think I, I see some who really do think quite deeply about, you no, know, just because we could do something, should we do it? Uh, and there are others for whom it's, it's, that's less of their motivation. So, so some of this is about how the whole structure recognises and rewards individuals and their contribution. And and I suppose my question would be, is, is there room for a spectrum? So sometimes you do need just to push a frontier and open a door and see what's behind it. You can't always predict what's going to be behind the door, but so does that mean you shouldn't open the door in the first place? And and I think the importance then is, is how rapidly you respond to what you find on the other side of the door and, and think about, well, is this a good result? Is this something we should be... Uh, be, be, be uh, pursuing further or actually is this something that we feel a bit uncomfortable about so I, I don't think you'll ever totally stop curiosity sort of driven research because I think people are curious um, but I think it is important to hold a mirror up to them and say yes well just be a little bit careful about when you open that door that you might find something on the other side you don't like 
mean, when it comes to unexpected consequences of technology, the climate crisis is kind of a perfect example of that because it itself, if we accept that it's man-made, which I think many of us do now, um, is the product of the industrial revolution of, of different ways of living and and producing things, which at the time, I imagine, the 19th century, <laughs> you know, engineers and industrialists weren't thinking about climate at the time. They couldn't think about it because it wasn't kind of on the horizon. And yet here we are in the 21st century living with the consequences. Um, in that uh, climate crisis episode that we had, is there a kind of a tale there, a cautionary tale of, of how far ahead we really have to think, Francis? I suppose there is, but I think there's also a tale of of how loudly do you have to shout that there's a problem before people listen to you? Because I can go back at least 25, 30 years when scientists were, for example, from the British Antarctic Survey, were saying, look, there's something funny happening here and, and uh, beginning to, to sort of look at the historic trends that they were finding in the, in the ice cores and thinking about, well, what's, what's happening now? So I think... There were some early indications that there might be something going on that people didn't quite understand. But, you know, if, if I go back to my childhood, we were talking about we're going to be entering the next ice age. So, you know, there is always going to be some element of uncertainty. So I think part of this is is to not just try and predict what's going to happen in the future, but think about what would be the early indications that there might be some challenges ahead and be more alert to those. And then when people find them, actually say, yes, actually, this does. This is an unexpected result. This is something that we need to worry about, rather than saying, oh, we'll just pop that under the table until it becomes a bit of a louder signal. And what do you think of the kind of debates and discussions we have around climate change now? Do you think they've improved over the years? Or do you think it's a bad example of, of communicating science or, or engaging science with politics? I think it has improved. I think there are more people now prepared to to listen and to think about things. But the the consequential actions that one has to take, you can see people being quite uncomfortable about those because you're you know having to talk about what will people have to stop doing that they've got used to being able to do, mm. uh, and so the impact on society and and getting people. Um, engaged in the actions that they're going to have to take is quite a challenge, I think, for politicians, because you're, you may be saying, you know, you've, you've had this golden period where people could go off for their fortnight in Spain and it was all affordable or, you know, you could pretty much have uh, whatever heating you wanted in your house. And, and, and you know, it, th- there is a risk that you end up with politicians having to make uncomfortable positions for particular communities within society and say, no, you can't do that anymore. I mean, this is um, what Fatima Ibrahim was talking about in that episode around the Green New Deal. It really is a fundamental restructuring of society in what is a more equitable way, but then, as you say, would, would require sacrifices. Sophie, just coming to you then, I mean, this is kind of one of the issues that a lot of social justice movements make, is that here we have an unequal society. How do we even it up without some people feeling aggrieved about it? Yeah, and I think one thing I found quite useful and insightful from that talk was actually the need to bring the climate discussion into people's homes and also touch on different communities. And each of them will have different motivations for for joining the climate fight. And I think she touched quite nicely on the contrast from, you know, this kind of green 
recycling focused approach to climate change and breaking it down now into um, other areas in our in our life and world and things that we can do to kind of tackle that. And I think it's important to do that, to get people on board and to actually encourage people to want to join the movement. And I think that's partly why we're seeing this change now is because there's only so far that people can kind of run away from the problem, you know? After a while, it, it will catch up on you. And I think even with the pandemic, we're seeing how how slow people are to respond. And it does seem that it takes until it's kind of right in front of them. A lot of people are still saying they don't really agree with certain things until they've experienced members who've been affected by, by COVID. And I think it speaks a little bit to human nature in that people need to see to believe. I mean, there is this, I, I've, I've been following what's been happening around vac- vaccine hesitancy and, and people, that you know, there's a lot of conspiracy theories around um, the new COVID-19 vaccines. But there's also this kind of feeling that I'll let other people take it first and see how it goes and then I'll take it later. And do you think there's an element of that when it comes to a lot of the things that we're talking about, which is we don't want to be the guinea pig. If, if someone's going to have to make the sacrifice, we don't want it to be us first, Sophie. Yes, I do. And I think it may be potentially one reason is that people don't feel part of the conversation. I think where science has been presented as as this small sphere of people and influence that maybe doesn't include certain parts of of the community in the world, they feel like they're guinea pigs because they're not they're not part of the discussion before that stage. They're not they're not aware of what's going on when scientists are coming together to discuss the solutions and discuss the discuss the different approaches. They're kind of presented with the the final decision and the final outcome and the final choice and then being told to do something when they weren't really aware of what other options there would have been before. So I, I think that's why you see people quite resistant to, to, then, to then agree to what's being said because they were kind of kept in the dark beforehand. I mean, that brings us quite neatly to the next episode, um, which is titled Who's at the Table? And one of the things that we discussed in in that programme was the kind of voices that we don't get to hear from within the sciences, the voices that have been historically excluded or even now face huge challenges in getting heard because of the way that we think about science as a kind of Western thing, a European thing largely, and that other systems of knowledge don't have um, that say. Francis, for you in your career, do you think engineering and science have been disadvantaged by the fact that certain groups have not had a chance to give their say and contribute to scientific knowledge? I find that quite thought-provoking, that whole that whole issue about what do we mean by science and what do we mean by by knowledge, really. I think that from my more from my experience, it's always useful to get a variety of perspectives when you're trying to solve a problem. That if you just surround yourself with people like you, you won't necessarily explore all the ground that you should explore. And so certainly my experience is that you, you can come up with better solutions if you have a diverse set of voices and thoughts and opinions around a table. But do you feel that, I mean, that requires people to have the humility to accept what other people are saying, doesn't it? Oh, yes, it does. And, and I think if you are in a senior leadership position, it's important for you to listen rather than always talk. 
Uh, and certainly that's there's something there about how do you get the best out of conversations? And, and it's not by saying, well, this is my opinion and starting off from that if you're sort of leading a discussion. It's actually asking for other people's views and other people's uh, opinions and facilitating that coming to a consensus or coming to or understanding where there isn't consensus. So I've learned over the years quite a, a difference in approach that you need if you want to be drawing out from communities who perhaps are not always engage with science if you want to hear their voices there's you have to take be patient you have to take time and you have to put energy into it um sophie this is something you work in actively at the blackett lab um kind of exploring how do we not just get representation but make sure that when someone is there they're not just there (laughs) as a token but that their voice Mm. is actually changing the way that we do research what were your thoughts on listening to that conversation on who's at the table I thought it was a, a really interesting discussion, actually. And I think a lot of the discussion about decolonizing the curriculum tie quite closely in with what we, we do as a group. And I think for us, a lot of what we do centers around representation um, and connecting those that already exist in the, in the field um, and in industry who aren't really being seen and whose voices aren't being heard currently. Because it's not not necessarily just that there are no people out there who are interested, who are black, who are physicists, who are scientists. They they exist. And I think it's important that we, we kind of capitalise on that right now because then, as we say, the next generation will be able to see themselves in science and then aspire to be part of it. So it's, I see it as both a current issue that we need to tackle and also a future one. And I think that's why it's important that we we kind of tie the two together. In one of the issues here, and this was something that was brought up by Carolina Behe when she was talking about her experiences in Alaska, was that these days people feel accepting of diversity to some extent. So they want people there, but they don't really want them there. They don't really <laughs> want to hear what they have to say or or feel that they're being challenged in any way because of because that person exists or has a, has a seat at the table. Do you find that, Sophie? Yeah, I think it kind of manifests itself where people maybe get uncomfortable about being challenged or being pushed in a certain direction or or a new direction by, by the increase in diversity. And I think that what we mentioned about needing people with open minds and, and that humility is quite important. And I think it's a, a trait in industry leaders, scientific leaders, academics that often gets overlooked and isn't given enough credit and value so when you're looking for people to lead your your new lab group or offices or lead heads of year I think those are the kind of traits that often get overlooked um we focus on their achievements and their qualifications but not Mm. kind of their ideas and and thoughts and I think it's we, we kind of need that in order to drive from the top down change um, because they are the ones who have power and they are the, they are the ones who will be able to influence and motivate people who are trying to get in and the people knocking on the door and they're the ones who can open it. Well, that's one of the issues here is that, um, you know, just because someone is a great scientist or an engineer, that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be very good at managing people or relating to people. And that's, I guess, an issue in lots of different industries. Um, Sophie, for you then, have you found any tricks or tips for getting things done, for moving things forward, even in very challenging cultures? 
I think collaboration can be quite useful there and and being able to seek advice from others. Um, and I guess it kind of ties back into what we've touched on already and that kind of need to be open-minded and need to have a desire to, to listen to other people. Um, and I think sometimes that can come from areas that you might not have expected. So I think when it comes to making change and moving forward, there's probably areas where we could be doing more to to broaden the sphere of, of knowledge that we kind of tap into. So what I quite liked was the discussion about indigenous science and going to other countries and thinking about the perspectives of different cultures and other people. And I think that's something that we don't often see is the value in science being done outside of the UK and outside of Europe. And I think everything can tie together to kind of answer the diversity question. Cause I for one know that if I were to see value being given to to research being done in my, like say, say my home country in the Caribbean or anywhere else in the world, then it will make me feel more empowered to talk about science mm -hmm. myself as somebody from that country. So I think that's something that could definitely be done on a global level. I think the scientists now and everybody who's working towards this this mission now, need to reflect the change that we want to see in the future. And I think that in order to inspire the new generation, I, I think a lot about up and coming scientists and young people in science now, because they are gonna shape the world and the ideas that we feed them as important are gonna shape their approach to doing, to doing science when they become academics or industry leaders. And I think that it's important for us to, to make, make it known and make it aware what is important and when it comes to discussions about um ethics and for example with big data and ai making sure that the new computer scientists are aware of, of how to take how to approach these problems i do think that it's the responsibility of those in the industry now to kind of get that message heard and out there for them to hear and see and Francis, do you feel that um, universities, industries are receptive enough to this idea that of not working within these silos anymore, of, of kind of branching out and broadening perspectives and reaching out to other systems of knowledge or other ways of doing things in the rest of the world? Or is there still a kind of arrogance there, do you think? I don't know. I, I think it, it would depend. I mean, I can give an example from uh, kind of my background was you know, was actually going out on uh, uh, exploratory missions to Japan back in the late 1980s and being quite impressed by the different cultural environment in which research was done, say, in Japan. And I think one of the things that, that people brought back from that was the whole idea of foresighting and Delphi processes and building consensus about future future options and future uh, technologies. So, so I, I think we have, on occasions, tried to sort of learn some good lessons from from other parts of the world. Um, I think part of this is actually to give good examples of where these things have been brought back to the UK and, and, and what benefit we've got from them. Uh, so, there's nothing quite like having an existence theorem that says, you know, we we went, we learnt, we brought it back, we've used it, and and here are some of the results. And and similarly, I, I went, was fortunate. I went out for a study tour to Africa back in the, again in the 1990s. Um, and one of the things I brought back from that was the strength, particularly 
without wanting to be stereotypical, the strength of women entrepreneurs, for example, in, in Zimbabwe and, uh, and in Kenya, and how much passion they had for developing their micro businesses and, and, and improving the lot for, uh, and making use of technology to help them do that. So I think it's using those examples of where people have gone and found things and bring them back uh, and to say, well, how would we do more of this and, and where, you know, where are the good ideas and being open to where those good ideas are from around the world. Francis, I just want to um, move on to the next episode, Power, Privilege and Cancel Culture, because, you know, you are a high powered woman in this field. You have been for a long time. Do you feel that for you, things have changed, that they've become, what has your experience been like over over the years? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think I didn't really feel I hit any glass ceiling or barriers for, for, for some time. It was really only when I got into sort of a, a middle management role that I started to feel that very competitive environment between myself and my managerial colleagues. I do think there's been quite a lot of effort in order to, to try and make those transitions easier, to get more women involved in uh, sort of non-executive roles, non-executive director roles and so on. But it it's very difficult not to be sometimes seen as the token woman. And, and it's something that I, I kind of really hate. <laughs> you know, the, the, the thought that I'm, I'm here because of my, my gender <laughs> rather than because I have something useful to say. Uh, and, and, I, and I do think, you know, if you look around, say, the science and engineering community, there are relatively few of us in senior roles and we do get tapped on the shoulder an awful lot. And I, I keep trying to say, well, you know, there must be, let's get some more younger women involved in these advisory and representative roles rather than always coming to us old people who are really a little bit past our sell-by date. So I, I think it's getting, I think it's moving in the right direction, but it's it's taking a very long time for people a little bit further down the career level to get those opportunities. I'm a great fan of trying to find younger researchers who've got something important to say and get them involved, and whether that be in university councils or or other kinds of advisory bodies. Now, the idea of having almost like a young advisory board, now we can recognise that again maybe a little bit stereotypical, but it, it might give people an opportunity to have to, to show to see what it's like to be in an advisory role and um, get co-opted onto onto boards earlier on in their careers. Um, Sophie, I mean, from your perspective as, as someone earlier in your career, um, what are the challenges that people face? Because I do under- I understand that at a school level and at an undergraduate level, we don't have an enormous problem. There are problems there, but they're not as pronounced as they are as you go higher up. So what is causing these kind of what are sometimes called pipeline issues? Yeah, I think for me, one of the big things is is lack of transparency. And when it comes to kind of what Francis was talking about and moving up the chain almost and progressing in your academic career, I think that people can't see because they're not aware of kind of how the structure works. I think there's kind of this, this curtain up almost in terms of how science operates and and the actual structure behind um you know, curriculum changes or policy making. I, I think people can't envisage themselves sitting on a board because they, they don't actually know what that looks like or how it works. <laughs> so definitely doing more to kind of open up that 
that curtain and show process and, and show how the processes work would definitely help. I think for me, even when it comes to academia, I didn't really know what the process was in terms of getting a PhD or being a postgraduate and then becoming a professor. That kind of pipeline is very blurry. It's not clear how you get from A to B. And I think that puts people off ultimately because not only do you not see many, you don't see yourself reflected there in the people who are, are already professors, mm. um, you also don't actually know how they got there in the first place. So it's, it's difficult to, to manage that. And to what extent, Sophie, do you think that actual discrimination, prejudice, sexism, racism are, are an issue here? Definitely an issue, a, a huge issue. I think that whilst credit is is can be given and is is very much deserving for those of us that are able to kind of push beyond that and have the confidence to still put yourself in an in an environment where you know you're going to be a minority i think it's very bold but it shouldn't it shouldn't be a fight it shouldn't you shouldn't need to fight your way through and and then um endure you know all of the microaggressions that come with that to ultimately achieve the same as one of your counterparts i, I think it's an unfair um, stress to, to kind of carry in an unfair burden to carry with you. So I think not only does it impact just the numbers of people getting into these spaces, it also impacts their experience during that journey. So like university students who are underrepresented, like women in physics or um, black people in STEM, I think ultimately will end up carrying a burden that you know, their counterparts don't have to, to kind of challenge and battle with. Mm. I think that should be recognised as well. And, um, I mean, one of the things you just talked about was um, the kind of opaqueness around how things work, which certainly I experienced mm. when I went from a state school to university. It just felt like there were cultures and, and ways of doing things that I had no idea about that I had to learn very slowly um, and sometimes too late that I just learned very late um, and around board memberships and, and all of this, which if you're mm -hmm. raised in a culture in which, for example, your parents sit on boards or they went, they went to a fancy university or, you know, they can guide you through it is not, you know, it really speaks to the, this issue of power and privilege. How can we narrow that gap, Sophie? Is there some way that we can kind of... Um, you know, give people those social cues and tools and information that they need to navigate these spaces better? It's a good question. I think it's not it's not an easy one. I think a lot of what we talk about are changes that will probably occur over a long time. And in order to encourage younger people to enter these spaces, we need time for for representation and diversity to kind of take effect. But before that, I think one tool that's actually probably quite useful is social media, just because of its kind of breadth and ability to touch different generations, different age ranges, um, different backgrounds, different groups. I think there we're talking about the responsibility for people to kind of share their process and share their stories so that people can can see what, what they previously can't. And I think that's where social media could be a powerful tool for um, yeah, getting those stories heard and maybe unpeeling those barriers. We did explore in that episode the kind of democratising nature of social media, but also there is there is a negative edge to it, which is that uh, you know cancel culture and and this risk that you face in 
public opprobrium because you say something, whether by accident or deliberately, that um, doesn't go down well. I mean, um, Francis, just coming to you, you used to head up the IOP. How difficult do you think that job is now in a world in which some institutions like the Institute of Physics have a have an online presence but constantly face the challenge of having to be seen to be doing the right thing all the time and not always doing it? I think that is a big challenge. I mean, I, I think it's, I mean, I, somebody, being a president of, a, of an institute like that, yes, you can help set the tone, but you're you're not doing it day to day. And for me, a lot of this, a lot of the risk in this is about um, education and people understanding uh, the language that is appropriate or the languages that different uh, communities that might uh, latch on to what you're saying would expect you to say. And you can very rapidly get out of touch. I mean, I, I, I recognise I'm quite out of touch, really, with, with the language the, the language, the use of language of, of communities, uh, whether that be from different parts of the UK, different parts of the world or, or different groups, that you can create your own kind of like a little mini language, mini culture. And it's really quite hard for an organisation such as the Institute of Physics to be able to tap into all those different kind of mini, mini cultures that exist amongst their community. So yes, I, th- I think we we did recognise, and it's uh, that there is a big risk of being out there. You know, there's a big risk that you go out there and you'll say the wrong thing and you'll upset people. But on the other hand, there's an even bigger risk that you're not out there and then you're not connecting. So I, I think it comes back to something that Sophie said about being prepared to show humility. And if you get it wrong, just go, yeah, I'm really, really sorry, we got it wrong. Uh, and this is, and, and not be too defensive, not to say, oh yes, and, and this is here are all the good things we're doing. Just put your hands up and say, sorry, we we got it wrong, and we'll try and learn from that, and we'll try and do better next time. But I would rather an organisation like the Institute of Physics was out there and occasionally making mistakes than sat behind uh, a closed door that did not try and reach out to the wider community. And Sophie, then for you, do you? I, I guess you value social media and being able to hold institutions to account in ways that we weren't able to do before. You know, to have that kind of immediate access to them. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I was actually one of the people who kind of shied away from social media for a long time, <laughs> even though a lot of people around me were using it. I I was really conscious about the dangers of it. I still am. I think, especially <laughs> especially as um. Because it kind of came up when I was a teenager and I just think that's such a tentative time and it can be really damaging. But now that I'm older and I'm kind of using it more for like academics and actually just digesting information, I can see some of the positives and I do appreciate them. I think that it's a two-sided coin because... um, Not only do the people writing, you know, let's say on Twitter, these tweets need to as we say, be open and honest about their mistakes. But I think also the people reading them need to be understanding and and also kind of understand that people do make mistakes. I think there's this culture on on social media and, and, and platforms like Twitter where people are pretty much looking for people to condemn and they're ready to prounce and 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 um, point people out and call people out, which I think we all accept that you are to be held accountable for what you say and what you put out online. But I also think there's there's room for just understanding that people are people as well. And um, things can be misinterpreted online. I think 
emotions are present too we're not robots people write things in different states of emotion and people change and people age so i i just think more consideration um is needed on both sides really in my view i mean i work with a number of institutions that that can sometimes find it quite difficult to navigate this new environment. Francis, on balance, do you think social media and this new information environment that we're in, it's not just social media, it's everything, do you think it's making institutions better? Is it driving change? I think it can do. I, as long as as long as what Sophie said, is, it, there's a bit of give and take in this. Because I think if you're not careful, you might frighten institutions and make them become a little bit um, less likely to open their doors to alternative thoughts if they feel that they're always going to be condemned if they get it wrong. So, so I think there's a tremendous positive opportunity for using things such as social media to reach people that you perhaps otherwise wouldn't reach who wouldn't come in through your front door. But, you know, as, as Sophie says, there needs to be some give and take in this because if, it, if they get condemned too much for the things that they do that they might get slightly wrong then they'll they'll just give up they'll say oh okay fine we've tried but it's not got, it's not for us so um in the last bit of this episode i want to move on to uh, healthcare and inequality which was an episode really looking at how do we shorten this health huge health inequality gap in some countries that we have not least here in the uk there's a life expectancy gap between the rich and the poor which has been getting bigger over the last decade Sophie, you work in this area. What exciting new things are physicists and scientists working on in this field? Oh, there's so many. I think that's one of the things that excites me about about medical imaging and AI specifically, um, looking at the kind of interface between them. I think um, there's a lot of work being done in actually thinking about people's lives and how to improve um, their quality of life. So when we think about things like neurodegeneration and dementia, for as an example, there's a lot of research that has been done and is being done in terms of seeing if we can predict earlier when someone might, um, if someone is likely to develop that in their later years of life. But then also looking at ways that we can start improving and helping to improve their quality of life after diagnosis. I think that's something I think is quite, quite powerful and quite important in healthcare research is to think about what it's like to actually live with the conditions that we're, we're diagnosing people with and seeing how we can improve that. Because there, there may not always be or immediate solutions to, to, you know, cure people. So I think that's quite a promising area of research. And there's a lot of stuff being done in kind of just studying people's patterns in the home. Um, one example is actually an app which just sends kind of reminders to people throughout the day. So it might not necessarily be tailored to to your specific tasks, but it will just be like, wasn't you meant to do something this morning? And yeah. that's just a way, that's just a way to kind of help people to remember essentially. Well, that's really exciting. I'm glad we're ending on a positive note here. Um, but then the issue here is that how do we make sure that the benefits of medical science, which are so vital, get fairly divided, not just among the people in the UK, but also around the world? Um, Francis, you've worked in government um, or with, with government. How do we build a more equitable future for healthcare? If I had the answer to that, <laughs> I, th I think part of this is to under you have to start by understanding what actually is the problem here? Is the problem about access to healthcare 
Um, is there just not enough healthcare provision? Or is it that people don't seek access when they they should do? And we've sort of seen this a little bit through uh, through COVID, where we've seen people not go to their GPs uh, when they've had things that might turn out to be life-threatening. So I, so I think part of this is, is to understand how much of the problem of, of inequality is to do with uh, supply and how much is also about how we encourage people to think about their own health and encourage people to think about when should they access things. Um, I also think that there's some interesting, I mean, some of this is also about data and research uh, and the both the Medical Research Council and the Economic and Social Research Councils, they have these so-called longitudinal studies where they try to understand are there early indicators that we should be looking for in various areas of the population that could suggest that people might be more likely to have problems in later life and and you know getting on board with sort of early cohorts so you you look at them through their first 10 years or 15 years because that can set the train for for how their medical outcomes might be affected later on in life so I think the more that we can do that sort of research to help us understand what the problems are and then also think about well you know what is the what's the level of demand that we need to satisfy and and also how do we how do we encourage people to do as Sophie was saying you know actually take a charge in some extent of their own health um, and how do we do that in a way that's equitable Sophie yeah I, I think that's quite interesting actually and longitudinal studies are are quite common and useful in the in the field of work that I'm I'm kind of involved in I think one thing that's also being used is this idea of active learning and expert input when it comes to kind of AI um, software so actually leveraging the the knowledge and the expertise of the clinician in in what you're trying to 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 model and produce and actually kind of putting this this kind of feedback loop into place where you can actually utilize their their skills and expertise to not only it speed up but also make more accurate the the outcomes predicted by these models i think that's quite a promising area of research because we're actually tapping into the, the benefit of human intelligence itself, not just artificial intelligence, you know, future future speaking, trying to see if we can replicate that, but actually capitalising on human intelligence now and feeding that into the machine learning models that we're building. Wow, that's a very positive thing to be saying. I do think we underestimate human intelligence. We focus too much on what computers can do sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so the... This entire series has been fascinating for me because I've heard from so many interesting people like yourselves. But I want to end on a high note. Um, So I want to ask each of you, what makes you hopeful for the future? We've we've been through a very difficult year, I think. But um, what makes you feel positive going forward? Sophie, let's start with you. I think actually conversations like this make me feel positive. I think that just having and being able to listen to people with diverse opinions, but quite positive perspectives on science and ways that they can shape and influence science um, has been really promising. And I I actually found it quite refreshing because it's a discussion, these type of discussions I I haven't come across as much or as of yet in the people that I've been surrounded by in academia. So it was nice to to actually listen to people who are conscious about ethics and people who are 
conscious about climate change and and what that means for different communities, particularly even the discussion about Western science. I think that one in particular stood out to me because everything I've learned has been quite Eurocentric. And I think um, it did make me reflect on kind of what, where the information I've been fed so far has come from. Lovely. And Francis, how about you? Young people. And I know that there's been ter- some terrible sort of anecdotal stories about you know, people saying, oh, we, we messed up with climate change, but young people have sought it, which I think is terrible because you're putting the burden onto, onto young people. But I, I'm very fortunate in a lot of the things that I do on a voluntary basis. I come into contact with young people either starting out in their careers or thinking about going into science engineering and that sort of enthusiasm for wanting to make a difference in whatever they do is just something that I it sort of keeps me buoyed up because in some ways I that's what I wanted to do I wanted to make a difference I'm not sure I always did meet that ambition but I I, I see that so much in, in young people and so we we should be thinking about what more can we do to encourage people to meet those ambitions to be, help them make a difference uh, help them achieve their career goals and you know, see that from a, as we've been saying all the way through this from a from a diverse perspective uh, so I, I am optimistic but it's a it's people as much as science well I do think both of you have and are making a difference as all the people I've interviewed in this series have thank you so much for joining me I've, I've enjoyed it so much it's been a pleasure well, thank you yeah, thank you so much as well. I really enjoyed um, speaking to you and listening to the other conversations you've had. Looking Glass is a Chalk and Blade production for the Institute of Physics. The producer is Fatuma Keira. The executive producer is Ruth Barnes. Original music by Alex Port-Felix. Sound mix by Nicola Rofast. The executive producer for the IOP is Louise Swan. And the series was commissioned by Rachel Youngman. The Institute of Physics is campaigning for more young people from diverse backgrounds to study physics. For more information, please visit iop.org forward slash limitless.